the podcast mode, but the stars weren't aligned. No, not today. <laughs> All righty. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. This is Valerie Leonard. I am the founder of Nonprofit Utopia. I want to welcome you for this surprise show. We had expected to be on the radio today, but we had something even better for you. We will be live. You will see our faces and hear us and all that good stuff. And you can feel free to post in the chat room any questions that you have at any point in time. So I just want to remind you that this is a social show and we are looking for you to chime in whenever you can, share, and make sure that you're watching with a friend. All right, thank you so much. And before we get started, I just wanted to introduce today's guest. Our guest for today is James Muller. He is a principal of James Muller and Associates LLC. And this is a full service firm focusing on organization management, including organizational development, nonprofit fundraising, and executive coaching for nonprofits and, uh, and for-profit companies. He's located in Delray Beach, Florida, and the company provides counsel in the areas of organizational development, governance, and philanthropy for organizations in the United States, Latin America, and the Caribbean. The firm's specialties include strategic planning and strategy, board development, performance, team building, philanthropy, internal and external studies, executive coaching, research, and communications. As you can see, this is truly a full service firm. Jim has a bachelor's of science degree in education from Cornell University in Ithaca, New York. He has a master of theological studies degree from Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary in South Hamilton, Massachusetts. Those of us from Chicago may also remember Jim from one of his former lives. I don't want to call you a cat, but you have, you have many lives, right? <laughs> I was rooting for him. Right, right, right. Cat has a negative connotation, but I'm talking about in terms of the wild men. cat. <laughs> a wild cat. Oh, yeah, Northwestern. Woohoo. So, so he has many lives. You might remember him from Goodwill Industries or when he worked for, is it Grinsabach? Grinsabach Clear, right. Clear, okay. Northwestern University and Lake Forest School of Management, is it? Right. Mm -hmm. Okay, and Advocate Healthcare. And Jim, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us. And, you know, before we get into the discussion of your seven principles, um, can you give us a little bit more information about yourself? You know, you have a very interesting background. Yeah, well, thank you. And that was quite a mouthful of things you already mentioned, so it's hard to <laughs> ask. But, um, but uh, after uh, you mentioned some of the places I worked at, I did work at Malmo Mater for about 10 years okay. and then Northwestern. So I spent about just shy of 20 years in higher education, about a decade in healthcare, and then a little time in social services uh, in the nonprofit sector before going to Grunzebach Clear, which is a consulting firm based in Chicago, international philanthropy consulting firm and then creating my own uh, company here in Delray Beach. And, you know, as I listen to your career path, it all sounds like various forms of ministry, even though it's not 
formal formal ministry. It's all mission related work, and that's awesome. Yeah, you know, it's a privilege to work with organizations that have missions mm -hmm. that serve people and communities. It's very very satisfying and very rewarding. So I, it's been a privilege for almost four decades, which is scary to say, but wow, that so. Oh, that, well, that's great. So you just wrote a new book and it's called Onboarding Champions, the, Sec the Seven Recruiting Principles of Highly Effective Nonprofit Boards. What made you write such a book? Um, I've been working with boards since I was a summer intern in 1972. Wow. My first exposure to the nonprofit <laughs> boards. And then right after graduate school, I was again in a nonprofit and just seeing boards from that perspective of, of and seeing a lot of good people wanting to do a lot of good things. And over the years, uh, in all my different jobs, I worked with boards in some form or another. And then in the consulting practice for the last 16 years, we've, I've done a lot of work with boards and uh, a lot of good people who aren't necessarily prepared to do the job they're asked to do. There's some very little education and clarity about what is governance and how do you, uh, how do you apply it for the sector's best interest. And so that was the, uh, the uh, purpose and source for writing the book. Yeah, and it's so interesting. People have no idea what they're getting into. <laughs> and, and I guess if they knew they wouldn't do it, right? <laughs> I mean, there so is much, truth to that. <laughs> there's so much riding on it. They don't realize that everything stops with the board. If there's any liability, it's on you. It, there's a lot. And we go into it ill-advisedly, I think. I think so often, you know, we have a heart to change the world and we want to do some good things, but yeah. people don't talk about what could go wrong. Or I find that many instances, and even it doesn't matter how sophisticated the people are, um, I, I find the co there's a commonality. People really, in many instances, have not taking the time to really be trained and, and really understand the the legal ramifications and the lay of the land and all that stuff. And not a lot of resources out there. I mean, you mm -hmm. have Indiana School of Philanthropy and there are a lot of graduate schools that are now doing nonprofit management, but not governance training. Right. And so that's, there's a, a, a very important need to fill that gap. Mm -hmm. And quite honestly, you need to, <laughs> Let me stop. This is Chicago. You you need to train some of our elected boards, right? I, yeah. I think, you know, especially about 10, 15 years ago, people kind of misread what their responsibilities were in terms <laughs> of governance. Yeah. I guess you had to live here to know what we're talking about. I was living there. <laughs> right. Yeah, I lived in Chicago for 22 years. So. Right, right. So, yeah, that's what I was getting at. The inside joke for those of you who are not from Chicago or never have lived here. But at any rate, um, I just found the book to be very, very interesting. I wish it was written when I was an executive director back in 2000, from 2000 to 2003. I had to find things out the way everybody else did by stepping in some of the biggest landmines you've ever seen. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think it was great. 
And what I love about your approach is, you know, it's not steeped in legalese. And at the same time, you didn't dumb things down and just assume people didn't know. But what grabbed me was your discussion about core values versus uh, key principles. And yeah. I'm just wondering, can you elaborate on what the difference is between yeah. the two? Yeah. They're... Um... There are a lot of values, beliefs, and principles that guide a nonprofit. Mm -hmm. And so I make the, the distinction between personality values and core values. And the core values uh, take a lot of work to define. They take some soul searching. And the best way I describe it is nonprofits are called into existence because of a need. Mm -hmm. And it's the values that you hold that compel you to do something about it. So right. what are those values that call you to act, right? And, and those are at the core of what you are. And they need to be carefully constructed. And uh, I've just been working this last month with a national nonprofit. And this has been just working on their core values is so important for their identity. And they understand that, that we spent a lot of time carefully defining what called them into existence. And it's a wonderful work for a board to do that work of what are your core core values. And then there are many other beliefs and values and principles that that, that uh, you'll find throughout an organization that guide it in different ways. But when you're talking about core values, it's that two or three or four that, that just really say this is our identity. And when you share them with the public, if they're well-crafted, they understand who you are. Right. So... For instance, I'll give you one example. There's a wonderful organization here in Miami. It's the Miami Rescue Mission. They've been around for a hundred years. Wow. Yeah. And a few years ago, we worked with them and uh, they their values are compassion, hope, restoration and transformation. And the, the idea is that that they said is without compassion, you can't give hope. Without hope, you can't transform your life and without transforming, you can't restore it. And so by just having those values of, of compassion, hope, transformation, it, it just, it brings you to a place of understanding exactly what that organization is. Yeah. You know, I'm sorry. Yeah. One of my pet peeves is working with organizations. They might say their organization's mission is X, Y, Z. They might have this list of core values that may be A, B, C, but right. the way they behave is like totally different. What do you do in those cases where there just seems to be a disconnect between who people say they are and, and who they really are and, and try to right that ship? <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, sometimes it's a matter of holding up a mirror. And I had a client a few years ago, another national membership organization, very large. And during my interviews, because I always start an engagement with individual interviews with board members and mm -hmm. they were talking about how difficult the board meetings were because so-and-so felt put down and so-and-so didn't feel they were ever heard and others said they were you know just argue at the table mm -hmm. and so when i did their first session the first thing i did was put up those comments on the screen and the room went silent and wow. when they saw that reflection they realized that their behaviors weren't aligned with what their values were mm -hmm. and they said, you know, we don't need to talk more about this. We get it. And so one way is to hold the mirror up. 
another way to do it is just to begin to test alignment, right? Mm -hmm. What are your programs and what are your values? Or what is your mission and what are you, what are you accomplishing in the community? Because when I talk about mission, I talk about, you know, what have you done for whom to what impact? So every mission statement for me should know who you're doing it for and what outcome you're going to achieve by doing it for them. So it's what you do for whom to what impact. And I think that really then clearly puts you on the road to knowing where you're going once you state it like that. Okay. And do you ever work with clients and ask them to prove <laughs> prove they are who they say they are? You know, what's the evidence, right? Right, right. That's true. I mean, you've said it as simply you know, as clearly as I could. There's some <laughs> evidence, right? Could you be convicted of doing your mission? <laughs> right. That that's, that's so hard. It's very hard. Is there it, enough evidence right? <laughs> right. of doing your job? So. And there's another cliche that says character counts. And, you know, I found that to be true in my own life. And I'm just wondering what role does character play in the development of a highly effective board? Yeah, I think it's critical. One great example is uh, one of the clients that, that I worked for, uh, went silent for a little while and I was wondering why. And then I read in the, the news that one of their, their key board members was being indicted on federal charges. Oh, wow, that, that, that's a reason to be quiet. Right, so. And, and this wasn't in Chicago. <laughs> character counts. And I always bring up the Girl Scouts who do this very, very well. Yeah. That character counts for them. I served on their board for Southeast Florida, which is a huge region. And so board members lived miles and miles apart and we would come together quarterly to, to in a central location. But what they did when they recruited is they, they asked for references. Wow. They interviewed to say, do you, uh, how do you feel you can make a contribution? They met with the, the chair of the board, the chair of the board development committee, the CEO for a couple of different times to talk about the contributions I could make. And they did these reference checks and they also did a background check. Mm -hmm. So they were very thorough. And the effect on me was not you're checking up on me, which I think many people are concerned about checking up on people. Right. You're doing due diligence. And I, I encourage boards to do due diligence. It works in a positive way. You want to know the character of the people on your board, because as with this one organization I mentioned, you don't want those surprises down the road. Because right. um, board member is representative of your organization for good or for ill. So, right. yeah, I was very disheartening. I had a conversation with somebody and he asked me, so what do you do for a living? And I work with nonprofit organizations. And the first thing he said was, oh, they're all crooks. So that's not true. That, that's really not true. But he's had such a bad experience yes that you know he believes that all nonprofits are that way so i, I think you're right yeah. Character and, and i i think there is a lot of trust actually overall in the nonprofit sector if you look at some of the trust surveys the edelman trust survey looks mm -hmm. at nonprofit trust and it's been on it's been going up and mm -hmm. part of what they look at when the, and part of the evidence was who do you look to for trust the board. Mm -hmm. So the board is really held into account for the reputation of the not-for-profit. So again, we circle right back there, don't we? Character right. equals trust. Yes, right. yes, yes. 
And then, you know, when I think of boards in terms of their competence, you know, I'm usually thinking about skills like financial management, fundraising, and, you know, accounting and, and all of that stuff. Uh, but I'm just wondering, you know, are there other ways that board members can be more strategic when it comes to recruiting people who are competent? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I talk about three of the, the seven principles are character, competence, and connections. Right. Just because someone's an accountant doesn't mean they're a good accountant. Right. They're a lawyer, a good lawyer. Right. And it doesn't mean they want to do that when they're volunteering, right? You don't want to assume that. Right. So when you're getting professional help, it's nice to have board members who can lend that if they're really good at it, right. but that's not governance. That's professional service. Mm. And business acumen to me falls further down. It's interviewing for the competencies you need. So what does character look like for you and how do you interview for it, right? What competencies, uh, let's say sense of humor is a big one for me. That's wow. people, the sense of humor. Do they have deliberative skills, good judgment? And uh, there's, you know, are they creative? Are they intelligent? Are they uh, 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 risk takers? Mm -hmm. What's the composition of things that you need? Are there certain, uh, uh, certain subject matter specialists that might help you? And then I also look at connections. The people should be connected to the community you serve. They should be connected to those that can help you advance your mission. They should be connected to philanthropy. So you should look at character, you know, character, competence, and connections. Just capture kind of the, the three areas you want to carefully investigate. For your board, I recommend building a board profile. What are the things you need to excel and what characteristics and interview for them? It's funny that, that usually board members are recruited because they're at arm's length, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than, and they hold the highest office in the sector. When you hire a CEO, what do you go through? Well, you have a job description. You yes. look for character references. You check out past history of what they've done. You ask and explore their competencies on the job, right? Why should we do less when we're recruiting board members? That, that's an excellent point. And it's interesting too that you framed competency in in ways that I never thought about. You know, because when you look at the assessment tools, typical assessment yeah. tools, you know, yes, it, it's the the hard skills. But you know, those leadership skills and just interpersonal skills are huge. Yes, they certainly are. And do you get along with people? <laughs> right, <laughs> basic one, basic, basic. right? Yeah. So what what's your mix gonna be like? Right. Yeah, I, I love that. And uh, you you also wrote about, you know, a very common situation, low board engagement, you know, people not willing to share their networks, not willing right. to fundraise and all of that good stuff. How, do, you know, and I'm sure by the time you reach a lot of boards, they're, they're on life support and you have to kind of <laughs> work, work with them. You know, you don't want to necessarily kick people off the board. How do you change? Oh, I mean, you do. <laughs> you actually do. Yeah, when I took over, I was asked to be chair of a, a board for a foundation for an art school. Um, I'm just going in, it, it, half the board never showed up for the meetings and just like their name on the list. And, and I had to call some people and ask, say, in a polite way as possible, but is this something that you really want to do? Because if you do, we need you to show up. 
because it's really important that every board member is fully informed and current on all the materials because this is governance of this organization mm -hmm. and you need to be there. Plus it was a foundation board, so it meant fundraising. Wow. Right? Yeah. You weren't there for advice, you're there for fundraising. So I had to have a couple of those conversations with people. Uh, and I think it's important, but I think that's where term limits can help because I know very few board chairs that are willing to have those conversations, right? Yeah. And so, and that's why doing your due diligence before someone comes on, because once they're in that seat, what are they there for? Mm -hmm. Two, three, or maybe forever for some boards. Right. Term limits. So if you can, there are pluses and minuses to term limits that I discuss mm -hmm. in the book, but I come out on the side of, it's better to have them so that you can recruit because through recruitment, you can really transform your board. And so you need to have that sense of movement within the, the, uh, the terms of board members. Right. And yeah, I can remember as an executive director, I, I had a board where not everybody was engaged. And it got to a point where the engagement was so low and the attendance was a problem that there are a couple times we couldn't transact business because yes. have a yeah. so people yeah. don't realize how something as simple as not attending meetings can literally hold up very important things yeah yeah and and you know i've seen so many bylaws that if you miss so many meetings in sequence you're off the board and, and i've seen those never enforced right, right. <laughs> people right. don't want to embarrass people and but still term limits come into play and what I found, there are a couple of ways to get at this. Okay. One is I do a couple of key workshops that you can do is what are our core values? And now it takes, it takes someone who is skilled at facilitation to get at those. And we talked about them a few minutes ago. But when you engage board members in that question, right, it starts to figure out what's your connection. And I also do storytelling workshops. And I, I, I talk about what is that five-second moment when you – found something wonderful or terrible about this organization that moved you, that caused you concern or caused you joy or caused you sadness or caused you laughter, right? Because we have those moments. And I take this from Matthew Dix. I have to give him credit. Uh, he wrote a book on storytelling. Um, but I've used that many times because when board members aren't attending, it's because you've lost their hearts. Mm. And you've got to recapture their hearts. Mission moments, every board meeting helps stir up the heart. Oh, but being connected to the work, if you're just connected in your head and not in your heart, mm -hmm. you, can, you, know, you can fall away and uh, lose that passion and interest. So when I'm talking to boards, I'd say you are responsible to cross the threshold of commitment. Mm -hmm. You have to own the good, the bad, and the ugly. If you're going to serve on a board, it's yours. So mm -hmm. you need to make sure that you're willing to do that. Um, and one of the things is I don't mind scaring people off <laughs> by, <laughs> right. by the requirements, right? Because if you scare them off by the requirements, sometimes the great board members, they like it because they step up to the challenge, right? Well, you know, this is what the responsibilities are. Right. And, and so the good people will step up and so you know how to separate the wheat from the chaff, as they say. Yes. So. Yeah. And, and what I love about your book is not only, not only do you give advice, but you also have assessment tools that can really help people to apply the learning immediately. You know, you could take your book to, the, to a board meeting and get some real work done. And, uh, yeah, I sprinkled it throughout with practical exercises that you can just in a few pages apply. And they're pretty straightforward. They're not terribly complicated. So they're throughout 
each of the chapters. And that was the intent to make it applicable. And you don't have to read the whole book. You can find the section where you're having trouble and work on that. The coming at it from a recruitment and onboarding was the lens through which I talk about really what is competence in board, board governance. And that all the things I touch on, those principles are all about the competence and how you are a competent board member. So, yeah. Okay, that's great. And, you know, I'm wondering from our listening audience, if you have any questions of Jim Muller, he is an expert in board governance. Um, and I'm sure, you know, if you're on a board or if you're an executive director, you have to deal with your board. I'm sure you have some issues. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to post and I'll share them with Jim and then he can answer your questions. All right. So one thing I'm thinking about, you know, it's pretty heavy on my heart as well as others, this whole notion of diversity, equity, and yes. diversity. And it, it, to me, it's not just a racial construct. I, I think people kind of talk about it in terms yeah. of race and gender, mm -hmm. but if you go deeper, it, it's really much more than that. How do you go about making sure that you have a diverse board, the decisions are equitable, and everybody's included, but there's still you know, some sense of order? I, I know that's difficult. It is extraordinarily difficult because every board has a culture. And one of the things, if you read in the first chapter, I talk about board culture, and that's where I get into core values. Boards need to understand what is the culture, and that is the unspoken rules about the way we think and act, right? That we right. don't talk about, but that's what we, how we do. And the research shows us that if we understand our core values and align with them, we manage our culture in an in, uh, intentional way rather than by default. Yes. So, so that's the first part is to know your culture. Also, there are also cultural differences mm -hmm. of all sorts. Right. Uh, people make meaning in their lives in different ways. And to some extent, and the for most boards, it's a white male paradigm. Mm -hmm. And once you're there, you see the world through that lens. And the question is, is how can you break up that paradigm to say, well, here is implicit bias. Harvard has a great uh, tool, online tool for all sorts of, to test all sorts of implicit bias. And I recommend that in my book to go to that site, but it opens your eyes through a few exercises to say, well, maybe I do have a bias I'm not aware of because we bring that to every conversation. When I wrote that chapter on comp, what I called composition, which really has to do with diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, some people call it. I sent it out to four black executives to, and when they got, gave it back to me, it, it transformed the chapter because I suddenly saw the world through their eyes that I thought I was seeing it, right. but I wasn't seeing it, right? And that's the tricky thing. And uh, I think we need to come at this with a little innocence and honesty to yeah. look at where might our blind spots be? I was just talking to a board uh, today, a very accomplished board of a very prominent institution because we're talking about philanthropy and, and diversity mm -hmm. and their perception that they can't be worked together. And I said, absolutely, you can work it together. They're not mutually exclusive, right? It, because if you see them as mutually exclusive, you're, you're, you're falling prey to tokenism. Mm 
Mm-hmm. We're going to have this person or that person because right. they look different, right? Mm-hmm. Rather than the competencies that they bring. So there are a couple of other tools I mentioned in the book to work at uh, pulling out diversity and building trust is a big piece. And also just looking starkly in the mirror at yourself and, and as honestly and openly as you can and get a facilitator. There are some wonderful diversity facilitators out there that, that help boards understand their biases because they are there. Yeah, and I'm wondering too, how do you make the business case for diversity, equity, and inclusion? That seems to be pretty hard. Yeah, I had a sum of disabilities and that opened my eyes as well. He had a different range of normal. Mm -hmm. Uh, Stephen Hawking might be a great example Ah. of someone who could offer because because of his disabilities, you would say, well, what contributions could, could he make? And look at all of the contributions he's made. And the thing is, you look beyond the surface to the confidence, right, and the character, when you're looking to 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 break through that. And it's uh, I don't know if I answered your question there or not. Yeah, it's yeah, but that's part of it. But I find that people who work in that space have a difficult time convincing white executives that it makes sense. You know what I mean? They're looking at the bottom line. <laughs> Yeah. Like, so, so why should I care? I, you know, there's one extreme that says, I don't care what color you are. I don't care about your gender. If you can perform, then fine. And then yeah. others, you, you know, they're, they're just more comfortable, you know, with people who are like, enculturation. Yeah. You know, and uh, I had a call from the Silicon Valley Business Journal. And she asked me why, because the SEC rules that came out recently overlooked disabilities when they're talking about inclusion, mm-hmm. completely discounted them. Wow. And, and so she said, well, why? And I said, ignorance. Mm-hmm. And I talked about that. We, there's a great deal of ignorance of self-awareness in these areas without being uh, affrontive to anyone. But it's this, this idea of there is so much to be gained from a different point of view. There's, and you don't know it till you experience it. As I say to my clients when I'm coaching, you can only see from where you're standing, but someone can help you stand in another place, but you have to be willing to walk there. And so it's hard to overcome enculturation, implicit bias. It, it's a challenge that we're, but I thank goodness it's, it's in the conversation now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think there's, there are possibilities. Okay, that's great. So we got a question from Miguel Bautista. Is there a process to quote unquote recall board members? <laughs> and and what, what, what is meant by recall in this case? Does that mean remove or call back to the board? Ah. That would be my okay. Yeah, Miguel, did you, are you still there? I, I know we can't always sit through the whole video. Um, I, I don't, oh, here. Okay. Okay. Yes, but yeah. Yes, what? There, there were two options. So you mean firing people or making sure they come back for another term? And and when I say fire, that means they haven't completed their first term. <laughs> as in remove, remove them. them. Great, yeah. thanks, Miguel. I get that. So I, I, yes, I think 
there are agreements that you can craft with board members of understanding. Like I said, we have job descriptions for a CEO. We should have job descriptions for board members. So they understand their responsibilities. And there are many reasons why someone may not be fulfilling their responsibilities. And so I always help board members have that conversation. Because I think that's the first thing is to find out why is there so, something going on right now. And the other thing is if they're not, it's, as I said, with the board uh, that I served on, it's that call to say, if you can't be here, we need people to be here to be well informed. And if that's not something that's going to be something you can do at this time in your life, then I'd ask you to resign mm -hmm. from service because we need people to be here. And so try to do it in the most understanding way, but the clarity of expectation is directly related to performance. And so that's important. And the other is just have good term limits if people yeah. aren't willing to step up uh, so that board members roll off. But uh, I recommend a conversation and they're hard conversations to have. Yeah, and then, you know, you, you brought up a point of term limits and having people rotate off. But what if there's somebody really, really good, they have to rotate off. How do you keep them in your sphere? Oh, there are sense? lots of ways to do that. Okay, how do you do that? Why we form advisory councils. Okay. I mean, there are so many creative ways you can do that if they're contributing really at, at a very high level. As long as they're not dominating, you can also invite them as guests to your board meetings, right? Yeah. As non-voiding members. Uh, oh, and awesome. getting that, that advisory council or to be on someone that you has agreed you can call on them for different questions and concerns or they can serve on committees that has and not necessarily be a formal board member during that period but uh yeah they, usually one year in between terms is sufficient and maybe sometimes they come back even more refreshed okay and then along those lines you know what if you want to bring on younger people. They may not necessarily have the experience, but they've definitely got the energy. What are some of the strategies for tapping into younger people? Well, there, there's a there's a program here in Fort Lauderdale called Emerge. And all they do is bring young professionals into the nonprofit sector. So there are programs like that around the country. But I would also say, is it token young people or young people who have can make a contribution oh. to your board, right? And if young people can make a contribution, you know what it is, tell them. Tell them why you want them to be on your board, what you're hoping they will contribute. Because there are a lot of wonderful, fresh, young thinkers out there, right? And it's nice to have them if you have them for a purpose. And, you, and definitely not as a token. You don't want people talking down to these young people. You want them to be uh, really embraced. And uh, whenever I talk about introducing new board members, you t I say, introduce their competencies, tell the board why they're here, what they can contribute and what you expect from them. And you should do that for young people as well, so that they are at the same level as, as every other board member and seen as that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I like that. And also in your book, you talk about continuity and lack of continuity doesn't necessarily mean that people have left the building. You can really <laughs> have people yeah. on your board, they can be present, but there's a lack of continuity. How, do, how does that happen? Well, um, I use electrical current to talk about continuity, you know, electricity, that if you don't have continuity, you're going to have short circuits. And so what I say is the board needs to know how the organization is wired. Mm -hmm. 
They need to know how things fit together, how things work, how the programs operate, how the finances work, right? They need to have a full and complete understanding of the board. And I give an example in the book about this one group brought in a new chair from a high tech company. And he was very interested in being there as a kind of a badge of honor that he is chair of this board, but he didn't understand how things worked. And a problem arose, a significant problem arose that was problem with a funder that may have been able to be foreseen, but was missed. And so there were some real significant funding issues in place, but because he didn't understand how that problem came about because he didn't understand the organization, his thing was to push the board to fire the CEO and the director of development wow. and to move on. And that's what happened. And it was sad because we had done an assessment and they were both competent. They missed something, but it also wasn't their fault that it happened, right? It, it was just a funder decision that was somewhat unanticipated. But if he had understood the reasons, if he'd understood more how the organization functioned and how the, the government grants came into the organization, he could have made a, a better decision for that organization. Mm -hmm. Now, how do you work with board members, you know, I guess given the experiences you've had and seeing all the problems that dysfunctional boards have, how do you work with boards and get them to anticipate problems before they happen. Is that easy or do you yeah. change the culture? I think that's called strategic planning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, and some groups don't do it, but it is, it's really anticipating. So when we do a strategic planning process, we really get into an environmental scan. What's going on in your world around you and how do you fit into it? What are your critical issues? Are you comp, are you, conscious of them, sir. There's this kind of deep looking at your, your challenges and opportunities within your organization, the cultural and community context and trends that you're facing, and then what's your value proposition that you offer and how are you going to interpret that into your programs to have an impact. But that process of looking internally and looking at your environment helps people anticipate problems down the road. So you, you talk about board recruitment and you talk about onboarding. Can you share with us the difference between the two and the role that each two play you know, sure. in effectiveness? Yeah, recruitment is before yes, onboarding is after yes. <laughs> <laughs> and is that for the life or is onboarding just that first, what, three? You know, I recommend a series. What the research shows and what, most nonprofits do is here's the board manual and we'll do 20 minutes of orientation. People don't retain it. So in the book, I go through several training sessions. I, I call them educational sessions. Um, I don't think boards need to be trained. I think they're highly educated people. You just right. have to give them the right information. So it's all about informing boards with the, and equipping them to do their job over a series of sessions because as board members get more experienced in their environment that they're working in, they can take in more information appropriate to it. So I scale it in over the whole year. You scale in these educational sessions. So the board members, and you do it in a way that you're, first of all, you're dealing with the history and the organization and its concepts, its programs, it's it, how it functions, right? You start there and then you move through all of the other things including philanthropy, which I put further down the line Wow. You want people to really understand the, 
the board before you ask them to start with helping with philanthropy. You want them to, to really understand the programs, the people, how things function, where the challenges are. And that takes a little time. And I also recommend a concept called board buddy. And that is where you get a, a seasoned board member pairing up with a new board member to have a conversation before the first board meeting, for instance, to say, here's what's on the agenda. Here's the history and context of the issues we're going to talk about. Do you have any questions, right? So that most board members sit like a deer staring into the headlights for the first right. meeting because they just haven't take it all in. But if you have a board buddy and an educational program over the course of the year, board members are going to come up to speed more quickly, be able to contribute meaningfully sooner. And, and be able to have opinions on things and use their judgment because they know they have the knowledge. You know, there's so much that you bring up in this book that's counterintuitive or so different from what I've learned. And it never occurred to me to, to have people engaged in all of the inner workings of the board before you go and ask them to fundraise. I mean, instinctively, I would want a rainmaker to come today and then tomorrow he's bringing in money. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what I want people to do is be able to tell the story. Ah. That's the board member's role primarily. Uh, the research shows maybe 15% of your boards are going to be comfortable with solicitation. Now, mm. if you have more than that that do, you're a very lucky person and great. Get as many as you can that are comfortable with that. But I want people to be knowledgeable enough to tell their own story of the organization. Mm. So it's that storytelling, which is informed by deep knowledge of the organization and experience with it. Yeah. Right. So it's so that it's inspired asking and inspired giving, not motivational asking, which is leads to donor fatigue and solicitor fatigue when it's an obligation rather than an inspired act. Mm. And I want people to be inspired when they talk about my nonprofit. And what are some of the, the key strategies you use for retention of, of good board members? Meaningfully engage them, don't make assumptions. Mm. Talk with them regularly about what they're doing, what is meaning, ask for their advice. Um, it, but it, it primarily something that's meaningful. And uh, to be, I think the CEO should be spending a good portion of time just on board development, relationship development with board members and figuring out also what their strengths are and how they can be plugged in and how the organization can get the best from the board. And it's interesting too, you know, you talk about a return on values. You know, we've all heard of return on investment, return on equity and all that good stuff, but a return on values, I've never heard of such a thing. How, how does one get a return on values? Well, this comes out of my problem with the overhead myth. Okay. Right. That you don't spend much on, on fundraising, right? You only spend so much. If you're over 15%, you're terribly out of whack. Well, it depends on what you're doing and what it costs to do what you need to do to raise money. Depends on your prospect pool, right? It depends on, on whether you have people in the queue or not. And, and the example I get is a, a, I use a backpack problem, a program, right? Where there are kids, um, there are kids in neighborhoods that are, that are not well-nourished. And so the organization decides to have a backpack program. Well, they, with at 15% fundraising, you know, they're able to, to feed, to have backpack food back weekend backpacks for half the kids. So let's say there's 400. So is 200 enough? 
Well, no, now you've got to hire more staff and you have to do more work to cultivate donors. Right. So you cost your fundraising goes up, right? But now you've fed 300 kids, but you still want 100 children without food on the weekends. No, so you figure out, well, we've got to invest more. We've got to take more time. We've got to, to make sure we raise the money. So let's say at the end of the day, it costs you 45% to feed that last 100 group of children. What's more important, the return on the value of feeding the children or the cost of doing it? As one president of a university I talked to, he said, anything more than zero is an advantage. Right? <laughs> it's a return. He's got a point there. Right. So I, I, they're tough, difficult decisions where you invest in these areas. But the thing is, is that you're not looking for return on the dollars spent on fundraising. You're looking for the return on the value you deliver through your fundraising. I'm all for efficiency. Don't get me wrong. But I just think the paradigm has been shaped wrong. And donors look at organizations fundraising efficiency before they look at their impact. And we need to change that. Awesome. Now, how do you measure return on values? Well, that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's why we have boards. <laughs> right, right. And, so, and, and that's what I talk about in that book. In that, in that lesson that I go through, I use some, some numbers that are contrived, but to make the right. point of this is what it's going to cost. What do you do now? Do you spend more to feed those children? What's the return you're looking for? Mm -hmm. And that is the board's responsibility, right? Mm -hmm. How much do we invest? but let's get focused on the service we're providing, not the bottom line of how efficient we are. So I think that that is a very good question each board has to determine for itself. What's the return on the value yeah, or I, our values that we invest in? And, and I think that's really interesting. I, I think a creative board could actually put together a dashboard, you know, mm -hmm. as, as they have their little financial, yeah information they can also include the social but right. that return on values I, I think that would really help them right. stand out I've, I've never heard of that before reading your book look that's nice to know <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you your book caused me to rethink a whole lot of stuff you, you know how you you read things you know especially when you're running an organization 20 years ago no doubt, but that, <laughs> that, I, I learned things a certain way, and you know I have a tendency to perpetuate what I learned. We all do. right, right. We all do. Yeah. And, and, and then I'm reading this book. I'm like, that, that's not what I learned, but this makes sense. It it really, you know, there's a lot of aha moments all throughout that book. So oh, I, wonderful. Thank you. I, I thank you for writing it. Like I said, I just wish you had the book. 20 years ago when I was <laughs> running an organization didn't know what the heck I was I wish I did too. <laughs> so, so, so we, we all learn, right? All These right. are lessons learned over 44 decades. Yeah, 40 years. You, you yeah, you write the book you wish you had. Yeah, there you go. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely yeah. true. If, yeah. if I were starting today, what would I do different? Oh my goodness, I would do so much different. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's too bad we, we, we age and we learn the good stuff when we get older. Yeah, yeah. We don't have it when we're younger. Yeah, if I had the the energy I had then and the wisdom I'd learned the hard way now, I think I would be one dangerous person. I know. <laughs> I know. Very dangerous. Yeah, yeah. 
And, and then this question about collaboration, you know, you talk about a collaborative mindset around the board, you know, and it's interesting what I hear of people talking about collaboration as it relates to nonprofits is usually the nonprofit organization vis-a-vis, -vis, you know, other organizations in the community. But you're saying that the collaborative spirit really needs to start with the board. And I'm just wondering, how do you infuse that collaborative value and then yeah. how do you make it work? Yeah, yeah. You know, one approach is a, is a, a team charter, mm. right, of the board, which grows out of your core values. I so, you know, what is our agreement to how we will work together and treat one another? And how will we hold each other accountable to this charter? Um, you know, it's that intentional culture that you create by thinking about it and articulating it or writing it down and, and then holding, holding each other accountable to that. Um, that's one of the best ways. And I've seen it work a number of times um, mm -hmm. because we know what we want to be and we align, constantly realign with that. And that collaborative mindset is, is it, it, being receptive and open and not having to have your opinion hold sway, but the best point of view holds sway, mm -hmm. right? So it's that ability to listen without, with as little bias as possible mm -hmm. and to, to add to. I always say, don't have a no but, have a yes and culture, <laughs> right? I love that. I love it, I love it. All right, so those are pretty much the questions that I had. I'm wondering if folks from the audience have other questions before we shut it down. This has been really, really interesting, Jim, and I, I thank you. And uh, before we go, did you have any parting thoughts, parting words? And let us know where we can find your book. Sure. Well, it's on Amazon, Onboarding Champions, and it's in Borders. It's also converted to every e-reader on the planet, so it can be found in any of those libraries. Um, but it really is be intentional about building the board. And this book is not only for boards, it's for executives, nonprofit executives, and also aspiring board members. I just had someone ask for it for her husband because he's serving on a board and wants to do better. And she said, I want him to read your book. And I flattering. I appreciate that. But I think it's a book for people who want to know how to really do it well, or to at least have good questions. And if you don't agree with me, which is fine, at least you've thought about the important issues. So make it intentional, mm -hmm. create a really sound governing board and recruiting and onboarding are the two key aspects of getting there. Yeah, this to me seems like a book that you would want your whole board to read and yeah. your executive staff so that people are learning the same concepts at the mm -hmm. same time and everybody's learning together rather than yeah. in a situation like you know one person knows and then once he is enlightened everybody else seems like neanderthals if, if everybody is working, <laughs> working one ceo bought it for his whole board so <laughs> let's let's see how that that uh that exercise goes yeah. <laughs> Alrighty, so I want to say thank you again, Jim, and I want to thank our listening audience. Um, and you know, I should show the cover of the book. So this is what it looks like if someone's okay. looking for it. So. Oh, I love. Yep. So. Great book. Okay, and Miguel again. 
not necessarily just in nonprofits where many keep the same old culture. You know, he's, he's seen that. How difficult is it to trash the whole old system and start over? Is it difficult, time consuming? Now, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like a turnaround. Are you talking about a turnaround? I talk about that in the book. <laughs> that, and that's another good great question, Miguel. I appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah, it is It is time consuming. Um, it, uh, and you do it over a period of com combining, getting into your culture. What does it look like? What should it look like? Doing educational sessions for the board and also through intent, uh, intentional recruitment according to really sound principles. It does take some time. Um, we've changed a couple of organizations completely and it took two to three years because people would hang on to old habits. And one of the things we did so was to not dismiss the old guard, but to listen to them and to say, why did you do that then? Okay, and how does that apply now? And so what I often talk about is the elasticity of imagination. Mm -hmm. You can only stretch someone's imagination so far and you have to find out where that limitation is. How far can you bring them now? Then how far can you then bring them to the next step? So it's listening and not dismissing the old culture, but trying to translate it into what the world looks like today and how it might be different. No, oh, I, I love that. So it sounds to me like you have to really be in it for the long haul versus coming in and just automatically discarding people who don't seem to fit with the with the new direction and all that good stuff. Well, and, and you know, it depends from case to case. Some cases, maybe people do need to leave if they're not engaged, mm -hmm. uh, you know, so and bad behavior needs to be called out, too. And mm -hmm. the board chair needs to step up in these cases. But usually I found most people are really good people with great intentions. Most, most every board member that I've in, encountered. And so you just want to help them change their point of view through information and knowledge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and Miguel says he's going to get the book. Thank I you. <laughs> I guarantee you, you'll love the book. You'll love it. All righty, so it looks like we're we're done. Um, if there are no more questions, you and I can end the conversation, but I, I think it was an awesome conversation. The book is awesome. I thank you so much for your time and, and for your patience and, and all of that. Well, I'm glad we finally made it. Yes. I appreciate you being so well prepared to ask really good questions. So thank you as well. Oh, thank you. And before we go, um, if people wanted to get in contact with you for any reason, hopefully it's business related, and um, how might we get in touch with you? Well, my website is Jay Mueller, my first initial last name, Jay Mueller at jmuellerassociates.com. That's my email address. And www.jmuellerassociates.com is my website. So it's, if you know my name, you can find me. Yes, yes, yes. And thank you so much, Miguel. We really appreciate your being involved in the conversation. And I'm glad that you found this useful. That's what we try to do. We try to make sure that everything we do, there's a lesson learned that you can apply immediately. All right. So thank, thank you. you so much, Jim. My pleasure. My pleasure. Okay. You take care. All right. Bye now. Okay. Bye-bye.